You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of Modern Myth. Uh, I'm Tristan, the Anarchaeologist, and today's episode I'm speaking to a very special person who I've actually met in person several times at conferences, and I just want to take the opportunity to sit down with her uh, on one of these shows and just talk at length uh, about aspects of archaeology, including her own PhD work at the moment, and also um, what it's like for archaeologists uh, in Germany and uh, the Institute, uh, the new CIFA Deutschland group over there. So, thank you very much for coming on the show, Michaela Schauer. Oh, English. I, I, I'm using my English word. I'm sorry, I'm using my Michaela. Uh, I'm using my English voice, and it's really weird. So, <laughs> thank you for coming on the show, and apologies for my English pronunciation of your name. Thank you for your invite. That's, <laughs> no that's completely fine. Normally, people struggle very much with my first name, so... But fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? And then, of course, somebody's called Jeff, uh, G-E-O-F-F, in like, and I always find that a really weird spelling, actually. <laughs> I find that one's a, that's a weird one. And nobody can get Tristan right. Like, I get emails consistently with the misspelling of Tristan, so I know that pain. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I, I want to kind of circle back. So um, you're currently doing a PhD, is that correct? Yeah, I'm doing that for some years now. <clears throat> and uh, finally, now I got time to really dive into it. Just because of Corona. And um, so I'm here and not on projects. <laughs> I've spoken to a lot of people who are doing PhDs and a lot of them say it's it is quite strenuous it is quite difficult um how has it been for you well yes it is but um it basically is because I didn't really have the kind of finance in the beginning where I could concentrate on the PhD so I was working in commercial ecology and then I got a job with CIFA and then I got a job with university and um, then I tried to do my PhD but it just didn't work out and so for three years or so I really didn't do that much on my PhD but now having just the job at university I finally have the time to do it and as I was one of the lucky ones who could really just go to their supervisor and say, hey, this is what I want to do. Is this fine with you? And just get a yes. Um, I'm in that lucky position that I really, really can do what I want to do. And just for our listeners there, which university is that? It's Munich. Munich uh, Bavaria. Mm -hmm. Are you originally from Bavaria? Yes, I am. I was raised around Munich and I'm still there. So I, I tried to go somewhere else. I went to Kiel for one semester, but um, I had to come back. I'm sorry. <laughs> Munich is the best city. I couldn't leave. Uh, you know, I, I have been to Munich before, actually, and I, 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 it struck me, actually, how different the Bavarian tongue is to normal German. <laughs> I, I always find it very, very interesting. Um, have you ever had a lecture presented to you in Bavarian dialect? Oh, yeah, we have some, some of our um, lecturers that have a really strong dialect. They normally try in the beginning to really use Hochdeutsch, but then they move more and more into the dialect. And I just really love it because I grew up in a small town around Munich where we have our own dialect too. So. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow, a dialect within a dialect. Interesting. Yeah, it's really like that. Sometimes you don't understand what the, the neighbors from another, you know, not far away small town are talking because they have such a different dialect that you don't get it. Do you, I'm just wondering now that I'm on this train of thought, is there any kind of like archaeology terms that are kind of been like, are in the Bavarian dialect that aren't in Hochdeutsch? 
have you ever had a conversation with somebody and said something and they've not really understood what you meant because you've used a Bavarian dialect term for, I don't know, a potter shirt or something? <laughs> uh, we, we have some of those, but normally as ecology is pretty descriptive. You can understand what the other person wants, even if you're using a strange word. Mm-hmm. So, but that's pretty okay. So I was able to talk with those in the north of Germany, <laughs> and we kind of got what the other one was saying. That's good. That's good. And obviously that works into this communication over between archaeologists all over Germany is now in a kind of a newer phase than it was before. Um, before... Uh, you know, you mentioned about joining CIFA and having a job at CIFA Deutschland. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what happened? Do you know what Germany was like before CIFA Deutschland was around? Because I know there are other kind of groups and organizations in Germany that deal with archaeology and heritage. Yeah, yeah. We have a very, very diverse landscape of organizations because it all just grew in a way. And there was never something... Like, okay, let's sit down and talk about what do we really need? Which organizations do we have? Which was something that the last conference of the DEGUF, so Deutsche Gesellschaft für Uhr und Frühgeschichte, picked up. And we discussed it there. Um, so, in fact, it didn't change that much since we have CIFA. But there was not really an organization that was called a professional association and was acting like one in all the ways that a professional association should act. So we have some who set rules and say, okay, if we we are part of that organization, then we follow this and that code, but there's no one who does something if something goes wrong. So, um, yeah, but we, we have a lot of different organizations. We have NGOs. We have also organizations like um, the Organization for State Ecologists, where they meet together. We have organizations for students. We have a lot of yes, scientific organizations who deal with specific times of ecology or specific topics. So, yeah, there's a lot of organizational stuff going on. And it's really difficult to find out who's really doing what and who is really doing something. Mm -hmm. And um, just so I understand, if you do, if you are in commercial archaeology in Germany, do you have to be part of one of these institutions? Do you have to sign up to at least one of them? Or can you kind of freelance and actually not have any ties to any of these? Yeah, you don't need to be in any of these organizations. Also, as a an individual ecologist, you don't have to. Normally, we all end up in being in several of those organizations because, well, we have different research interests. So you go to that group where your research interest is, and then you start to work in another country, and then you think, well, that organization is now of interest for me too. So you normally have several memberships. Ah, that probably comes with it. Several cards and several monthly fees as well, I'm sure. It does. Oh, (laughs) joys. It's quite interesting having uh, quite a history myself of how CIFA operates. Um, I'm quite interested to know what CIFA looked like from the outside uh, and why why not start... why, Why Do you know why they didn't think about starting their own kind of institute for archaeologists from the ground up it seems more like like CIFA kind of you know mobilized over and you know into Germany rather than like something sprang up by itself but maybe that's the wrong the wrong perspective on it how did that actually happen yeah that, that, that's a really good question because this is how it's normally perceived also over here but it's just let's say wrong um, because it was a really big discussion that started already in, in autumn 2016. Degoff then asks their members if they would be interested to talk about professional associations for Germany, so do we need that? And they had 
really so many replies, not just from their membership, but also from outside the membership that said, yes, please, let's talk about that. It's so necessary. And those, they put together a group, and I was part of that then, who should organize an online conference. And it was all about discussing that topic. Do we need a professional association? If so, how should it look like? Who should be included? What should it do? How should it be financed? What are the issues that need to be addressed? And we really did that discussion for several months. And we set the rough topics from the organizational side, but if topics came up during that discussion, we just added them and used them. And um, it's also published. So we've also written, written down the results of that. And during that discussion, we often spoke about that. Can we, or is, is it a good idea to build something from scratch? Or is there something we can use? And uh, really, I, have, I had never heard of CIFA before that. And during that whole discussion, it came up at, in some places, but I never really realized that until we came really to the end of the discussion and we had that question. So what do we want to do now? Really that, do we want to build something new? Do we want to take something? There again, it came up and then I realized, oh, look, there are professional associations outside of Germany, which we can really look at and see what's happening there. And then, Sifa, who had a look at that debate for the whole time, came back and said, well, okay, as we can see that your result might be that you want to use something that already exists, we would be there. So if you're interested, we could help you with the stuff we know, with all our experience and help you set something up that works for you. And we would finance someone part-time that can help to make our system work for you and to make all the necessary changes. And then you can start to build the committee and then you can start to work in Germany as it is needed in Germany. And then after that online debate, we had our normal conference where we again discussed this topic and again came up with that, okay, we don't have the financial resources to build some, something from scratch. It's just not working. And we don't want to wait for, I don't know, 20 years or so until something is working and we have everything discussed and we have all the rules set up. We want something now because we need it now if we want to save ecology and especially the commercial sector. And yeah, so we decided, or a group of us decided that CIFA is the right way to go. And well, then about 50, people agreed that we want to start CIFA Germany. So that's how it went. That's good. And I'm just wondering, um, you, you talked about um, needing the requirement to protect archaeology, to secure it, and um, as a kind of, as an ongoing project. I know that in the UK at the moment, I mean... <sighs> I'm not to date this episode, but obviously we're in the middle of uh, a pandemic at the moment. Yeah. And um, one of the concerns is that there might be, there was a, a government minister recently said that they were looking at cutting red tape when it came yeah. to housing development. And obviously that rings alarm bells because there have been discussions over the last number of years about the planning bill uh, and what it would mean for if archaeology wasn't a full requirement or that the bar, the standard for which you had to, the standard of archaeology that you had to take um, before you were allowed to develop and build was lowered, that that would be a concern and a threat to the profession. I'm just wondering in Germany, what is the, like, how is it? Is it much the same with um, how archaeology, commercial archaeology works? Is it because there people want to build or develop? Is, is that the same concerns that you have over there? Yes, it's, it's exactly the same. So we, we have polluter pays principle over here, which means as long as someone builds a house and there's a rule in place that says before that you have to dig, 
then the polluter has to pay. And of course, the polluter doesn't like that. So there's always that threat if politics decide to go with the polluter and they change something in the law that the rules are not that strict anymore, that ecology really, really gets into big trouble. So our highest goal is to make ecology important to the public and to politicians. So we can show what we can do and why why it's not okay to destroy the ecological record. But um, as soon as money is in the game, it always gets difficult. And yeah, we're very worried what happens if funds get cut when laws are changed. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about um, taking aspects of CIFA in the UK the Chartered Institute for Archaeology in the UK, and adapting them into what would become CIFA Germany, CIFA Deutschland. What what changes do you think broadly are different? What, what are the differences between the UK and Germany in that way? And what changes did you feel uh, needed to be adapted uh, for that to kind of work? Yeah, that, that's a really good question, because our main goal is to stay CIFA as most as we can. Because we want to be part of SAFA, we don't want to be our own organization or something. That's, that's not what we want to do. But we are a different country, we are a different culture, and it's much more different than all of us ever expected in, in many cases, especially in communication and how you present stuff to people. That really, really differs a lot from the the nice gentleman way like Sifa is talking, or as I perceive it, is talking in the UK to the more blunt way we're talking in Germany, or at least this is how I feel with it. So we, we need to change just some of the wording and convey the messages differently. So the flyers need to, to convey the same message, but be uh, written differently. We react differently to pictures or so in some ways. Yeah, well, I feel that's that is the differences between like the UK and Germany. Um, I, I do, I do love a good bit of German bluntness. To be fair, like I, I love the fact that there's a straightforwardness to how things are done, which is very nice. Because uh, I, I mean, like I've I've worked a lot in customer service in speaking German and. I do like the fact that you're able to say, well, this is how the system works. I can't change it. And they're like, fine, but your system's terrible. I'm like, okay, <laughs> done. We're fine. I, lo- I-, I just love the aspect of like, well, that's it. You know, okay, there's no fighting. It's great. <laughs> but I-, I-, I, like- I like this idea that, you know, th- these are really important cultural differences that I think it makes such an impact when things are tailored because it would have been so easy to kind of just try and copy paste CIFA. Uh, the real challenge there is to actually making that a meaningful, a meaningful change and uh, making that kind of work with all the archaeologists that are in Germany. Um, I'm assuming it's been quite a good response from archaeologists since CIFA Deutschland was set up. Have you had lots of people take up membership? You know, what's been the response to it? Well, the response is quite diverse. And uh, we had some very, very good response. So we have really, really supportive people over here that are really engaged. So I just have to say, I, I love my committee. They are the best people I've ever met. And they're so, so, well, they're just so good. And the, the work with them is uh, really amazing and what, what we can do. But we also have a lot of people that are really, um, well, they're just looking how things are going, you know, they're just waiting what's going to happen. And that's one of the worst things you can do because just waiting, nothing will happen, especially with something like a professional association. If they just look, if we have success, this is not how it works. They need to get involved so the thing can have success. And of course, the people who don't like it are much louder than those 
who like wood. And it's always difficult to, to argue for a professional association because there's so many things behind it. You need to know to really proper argument for the association, but it's quite easy to say bad things about it that's, that are just half true. And so it's really easy to, to make people feel insecure. And so they just lean a bit, little bit back and say, okay, we wait how it goes. But, um, well, for me, it's still the, the best thing we can do in the moment. And I think we are on a good way. So, yeah. I mean, it is very new. This is like, we're, we're talking barely a couple of years as well. Uh, yeah. In comparison, CIF has been around far much longer than that. And it still gets, has a lot of critics, you know, even I yeah. have criticisms, you know, and <laughs> this is the thing, but like, for me, there's a difference between, I think, the criticism outside the organization, you know, channeling inwards and criticism that I might have having seen how the beast operates you know uh, yeah. seeing the inside and I think but I think you know there are certain things that are really really good um, about certain kinds of feedback that you can get that I think th there is always that part of reflexivity that kind of like reflection that looking back and thinking right is this the, the right path to go on is this the right thing to do and I think it's it is really good even if stuff is kind of like, let's say, angry, vicious, and things like that, I think the heart, you know, people, I think most people who are kind of like ambivalent, at least would like something that works. You know, I, I think, yeah. I think most people, I mean, most people want, want something that like, actually, a lot of people feel, I think, that archaeology is quite insular you know it's made up of little islands mm -hmm. and either you're in the this island of this university <laughs> or this island of this company you know <laughs> and people people have temporary contracts and they get on the boat and they sail from one island to the other and they sail to the other island but because they've only got a wee boat they've only got a couple of belongings and so they're constantly moving mm -hmm. from boat to boat to boat and i think it would be great to have like a way of connecting it, having a bigger boat. This metaphor is really, really gone f much further than expected. Um, but it's very, does that very make nice. sense? Yeah. Oh, oh, I could bring in and the rough seas of economic <laughs> uncertainty, <laughs> the storm of a pandemic. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. We need to, to wave the flag and hold everything high and we will survive. <laughs> but I mean, that, that, that is, that there, is a, there is an important step there. Um, I mean, in the UK, obviously, there's the big B word that I don't really want to say, but, you know, the big Brexit word that... <laughs> <laughs> Nobody <laughs> no heard <laughs> no one's sure what it's actually I've, I've seen both sides of the argument in terms of it's going to be great for archaeology it's going to be terrible for archaeology yeah and it's kind of like i mean i we there, there's been a lot of talk about a high-speed rail uh project which is meant to have so many jobs so many jobs in the uk we're going to run out of archaeologists mm -hmm. which i think is the funniest phrase i've ever heard um in Germany, are you ever risking running out of archaeologists for all the work? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, we really are. It's, it's kind of funny because we just did a very big study with Deguf, um, which is called EVABA, Evaluation um, Beruf Archaeologie, so evaluation of um, the profession, archaeology. And we asked a lot of stuff from how does your contract look like, what do you earn, up to how do you feel about yourself and ecology, how safe do you feel, uh, what's about family, all that kind of stuff. And um, we also went to universities and asked how many students do you have, how many do you really get the degree, um, and we asked companies in another survey, um, how many people do you have, how many people do you need? 
And it turned out that the companies need much more people than we have at the moment. So the, there is really not enough trained ecologists to go into the commercial sector in the moment. Wow. Right, everybody, get your visas ready. <laughs> <laughs> because one of the common complaints over here is there's not enough jobs or there's not enough of a certain type of job. Um, yeah. I, I really like to hear um, what happens in Germany. I mean, in, in the UK, um, the last time it was profiled in the profession was actually 2013. So it'd be really actually interesting to see if, if we could do another study like that and see how far that's come. But I remember a lot of the problems with archaeology is very temporary, that a, a large number of people after about two years um, quit the profession. Um, yeah. And I, I'd be really interested to hear what happens in Germany with regards to job retention and staff and training and everything like that. Yeah. Um, well, to, to back up a little oh, to sorry. something you said before, which, which is people leaving the profession after two years, which is something that's quite common here too, because um, the complaint is you don't get jobs, which really means you can't get jobs at university or in the public sector ecology because the talking about commercial ecology at universities is so bad that people feel like they didn't make it if they get into commercial ecology and of course commercial ecology is a really hard job to do because you're out there if it's hot or if it's cold if it's raining you have not just your boss, you also have the polluter and the state ecologist and everyone is telling you what to do and you need to do your job and you need to be good in ecology, but also be good working with people. And then you need to know your tools and um, you have to organize all that stuff. So many people just don't want to be in that sector. But saying there are no jobs in ecology is something I feel is just wrong. And we are educating people wrong on what is a proper job in ecology. So I just felt that I want to say that. <laughs> no, that's really good. And and I think there is there is a kind of, I, I think that in the UK, things are getting a tiny bit better because a lot of archaeologists are now joining unions. No. And I'm hoping that creates a little bit of a groundswell of like proper kind of representation and yeah. kind of employee-employee relations. Uh, because I think... Some people, like, I had a brief stint in commercial archaeology, and I mean the briefest of stints, and I just couldn't, I mean, it was, like, honestly, I, I can't even say I was an archaeologist at that point. It was, you know, it's so short, but it was because I joined <laughs> sometime in the, like, like the autumn, and just come December, they were like, oh, they might have some more jobs for you, you know, like in January when things heat up again. And I'm like, I need a job. This is all temporary, like three week contract, one week contract. And, you know, like I didn't want to start roaming around the countryside, you know, traveling to like several places, um, you know, for three or four months in temporary accommodation. Yeah. Like, I did, I, that's not what I foresaw as what I wanted to do yeah. uh, and some people are okay with that but like I feel like there's almost like this this extra standard that like only if you submit yourself to these conditions can you be a real archaeologist and I I think there's there needs to be much more flexibility I feel in how companies um kind of address like deal with staff who are not willing to kind of like go to each end of the country and you know work uh because i actually enjoyed being outdoors i actually enjoyed the wet and the cold mm -hmm. and i remember i remember digging in clay in rain one time oh, that was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was doing archaeology so you know i was like i was still like excited and happy um, but I think it was the other conditions that really, that really put me off, you know, yeah. and I just, I, I couldn't do it. Yeah. I totally get that. And, um, yeah, this is also one of the, the common issues we also have over here, but 
coming back to that survey we made, we just published last week or so a part about contracts and salary. And um, it turned out that in commercial ecology, you have less of those contracts who are just for some month. And you have a really high rate of permanent contracts. So there's something changing. Of course, I know we have a lot of companies which still employ people just on those short-term contracts. But there are more and more companies realizing that if you have permanent contracts, the people that are there, you can really use them, get to know them, see what they can do, train them in the ways you need them to be trained, build proper teams and stuff like that. And then you're really more efficient. So there is a change in that. And it turned out that there are much more short-term contracts in uh, public sector ecology and universities and stuff like that than really in the commercial sector. But in the commercial sector, the payment is really bad. So. Mm -hmm. Are there, like, uh, obviously CIFA over in the UK has suggested minimums uh, for different, like, levels. Um, <laughs> well, oh, oh, is this a spicy, is this a spicy thing? Um, in Germany, what, what's an entry-level archaeologist um, earn, roughly? Like an entry-level uh, commercial archaeologist's? Uh, well, this is what, what we try to figure out in that research, what we did. And, um, well, it depends. If you're really entering before you had any training, then you end up as a helper, something like that. Then you earn in the middle about 1,800 euros, roughly. And if, if you go up to being a head of excavation, you're, yeah, you're ending up roughly around 3,000 euros in the moment before Texas and everything. So, okay. So just, just to sum that up in year, yearly amounts, that's 21,600 for 1,800 a month. And give me a second. I'm, I'm going to figure this out. Uh, 3,000 times 12. Um, sorry, I'm really bad at like maths. Oh, thirty-six thousand. Okay, I, I can. Un I've I've placed myself in the zone here. I know yeah. how much that is not. But that's actually, is that better than? I think that might be better than UK. Yeah, but <laughs> it, to, like, yeah, it's it's really really bad for German standards. Mm -hmm. So we are very, very low with that. And compared to those who are working in the public sector, it's between 60 and 20% less than they earn in the same position. That's, I mean, how do you, how do you even go about trying to change that? Like, what, what do you feel needs to happen? Can, can CIFA do something there? CIFA Deutschland? We are... We are quite convinced we can. We started before that publication I now just quoted came out. We made a, a quick survey and asked, so guys, these are the normal levels of expertise or uh, responsibility we have in the field. So helpers, uh, technicians, head of excavation. And what do you feel those should earn? At the, the least, so really the salary benchmark, what should it be? And below that, it's not okay if someone gets less than that. And um, it turns out that what people say, what they really say is the lowest benchmark. We can get there in about, yeah, in some years about depending on how we do it, three to five years, we can raise the level we know people are getting now there if we develop a good plan how to do that. And this is our next step. So we will build on our next AGM, a working group, where we give all the information that we have now from the surveys to them and all the other backup stuff we already have and all that CIFA is doing to keep the salary benchmark or to, to do it in the UK, and they should develop a plan how we can do that over here. 
of course, we can only do it for companies that are registered in CIFA, but we also realized that just what we did with Degoff and CIFA so far, bringing people to think about it, to realize that they get so much less than they deserve, that they start to talk, that they start to discuss, that they start to look outside of ecology and see something is not right here. They're earning less than those who work for the state, which normally is the other way around, because there's much more security working for the state, so you can learn less. But um, it's completely different in ecology. So that people started thinking already brought us to that state where we can talk about that, which you wouldn't have. I don't think it was possible before we started that discussion in 2017. So I don't know if it really will work out. I'm quite confident that we can find a way and a plan that really can work for Germany if we include employers and employees and they talk it out together and see what's really possible. So we will see what happens. But I think we really have a good basis to do that with the service we have now. Mm-hmm. What was the most surprising piece coming from that survey? Was there something that you kind of results that you saw and you thought, wow, that's that I really didn't expect that? Or were you kind of like, did it show what you were were considering what was going on? Well, it was much more shocking than I thought. So that the the salary is so bad. Well, I worked for eight years in the commercial sector. And then I started to work part-time at university and I was so amazed how much more money I was getting for less time I worked. Um, So I I know a little bit, but it's still so shocking to see it on paper, how low the salary really is. And it really hurts me to see what that means for people's life, that they that they can do what they love only by sacrificing everything else. So that was really, I I thought it was really bad. I was very surprised by that, about the contracts, that there are really less um, temporary contracts and that in in the commercial sector, it really counts what you personally can do in relation to when you're at the university, for example, where at some point your contract just can't, you can't get another contract because there are laws in place and no matter how good you are, you can't get anywhere. But in commercial ecology, you can get somewhere with who you are and what you can do. So I thought this was really amazing and gave me another view on commercial ecology, even if I really loved that part of my job. So I'm really anxious and hoping that I can get at least one summer project done this year. I can go out in the field because I'm missing it so much, just mm-hmm. digging. But uh, yeah, I know that for many others, the commercial sector and all this excavation is really more a threat than something mm-hmm. they like. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, uh, I remember I've seen actually um, reports of um, people doing archaeology while social distancing at the moment. And um, I mean, there are some sites um, where and some types of jobs where you can kind of do that in archaeology. But there are some situations where you're in a trench and you can't really do the two meters. Um, So I'm very interested to see how, how that progresses um as everything kind of like seems to be moving back to life whether it should so quickly or not uh things are kind of picking up again yeah and i think there's um there's been a lot of archaeologists here in the uk who are furloughed uh on the government scheme uh for like salary replacement and things like that and i think even in the uk the 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 desire to get back to work i i'm i'm kind of i'm i'm hoping that um 
I'm hoping it doesn't force anybody into a kind of a difficult position because um, that that is one of the other problems with a, a low salary is that when you you know you have to work yeah. because you don't have a, a cushion and it's not really easy to work from home if you're an archaeologist yeah. because you just end up digging up your own garden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is great if you have a garden, you know? Yeah. Uh, broken broken pot shirts are only going to get you so far, unfortunately. Yeah. But I know somebody who knows a wee bit about pot shirts and ceramics. <laughs> so... We're having a wee chat uh, pre-recording, and you, you you let slip that your PhD is working about on ceramics. So, could you tell us a little bit about the ceramics you're dealing with? And I'm assuming they're in fragments, because if you get a complete one, that's really something else. Yeah, well, in the settlements I'm working with, there would be complete pots, but they're in museums, so I can't get them. But uh, well, yeah, I mean, you know, if it's late at night, nobody's around. You know, <laughs> it's not as if the universe, uh, the museums are beyond looting places. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, the good thing would be I wouldn't need to uh, do something illegal because I'm working with non-destructive chemical analysis. So I'm um, I'm doing PXRF, so portable X-ray fluorescent analysis on shirts. And um, I'm working with very early ceramic. I'm working with linear band ceramic. So I think most of us are familiar with that. So it's about 5,500 BC. And um, I was interested in a pottery that is together with Elbika around the Rhinian area, and it's called Laoget pottery. And it's sad that this kind of pottery is made by Mesolithics or by herders, but we don't really have that much else from that people. And I stumbled over that in my fourth term. And I wondered since then, can we really say that just by having a special kind of pottery that it's an own culture because it's normally together in... Yeah, well, the settlement of the LBK and just when this ceramic was defined, they thought that no other parts of LBK culture were outside of that area where they normally settle. But now we know that also some access, for example, are far, far away outside of the normal territory of the LBK. And so when I was thinking what I want to do for my master's thesis then, I said, well, I want to do something with Laoget. And then my supervisor said, ah, don't do it now. Do it for your PhD. And I was a little bit frustrated. But for the PhD, I, I got to that point where I said, okay, now I want to have a look if those two potteries are made from the same clay. Because if I can say they are made in the same settlement from the same clay, it's quite logical for me that it was made by the same culture maybe for different purposes or from different groups inside that society but inside of that society and it's not two different cultures and yeah this is what i'm doing in the moment and it's so exciting you never know that is really cool and actually uh, x-ray fluorescence sounds really really awesome so I'm assuming the X-ray fluorescence is looking for particular um, like minerals and like um, elements, and I'm guessing you're then like fingerprinting almost like the the clays. Uh, what are you? What are what are the signals that you're looking for uh, with your X-ray fluorescence? What um, elements are you identifying? Yeah, well, well, you're completely right. I'm identifying chemical elements, so I can't say anything about the minerals because I can't, just can say, well, there's a lot of, I don't know, strontium in there, but I can't say in which combination. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking for a whole range of elements, so I can measure about 20 really properly, and I can calibrate on about 20 of them. And there are several that are for the, for the source. So very stable elements like strontium or rubidium or yttrium, those are for finding the source. 
And then you have other elements like aluminium or silicium or iron, for example, that are more for the, the paste of the pottery. So you can identify different things by using the ceramics, but you always need to know your pottery. So you can't really do just the chemical analysis without doing microscopic analysis on your pottery. Because if you don't know what temper is in there, you maybe get a wrong idea just from having a look at the chemistry. But um, if you sorry. have a... Sorry. No, no, go on. If you, <laughs> if you have a chemical fingerprint for your pottery and you know or you have some samples from clay sources, then you can try to match them by using statistics and also using just two elements together to say if you really can match your pottery with the source. I was wondering if um, how, how, how prevalent is stuff like diagenic alteration? Like, um, you know, uh, clays are sometimes quite porous. Yep. And so in certain conditions, they can absorb and desorb certain chemicals like, um, you know, um, strontium and calcium can wash out into each other and stuff like that. Yep. How do you know, um, you know, the preservation conditions that these uh, pots are in, does that give you a kind of like a stability that you know that these are elements that were in the clay rather than absorbed from around um, the, like the sediment around it? Yeah, yeah, that's... Uh, that's a really important thing you need to take into account if you're doing the chemical analysis. So there are some elements you can use to find out, for example, if there is a modern introduction, uh, if there is an issue because of agriculture, for example. So if you have very high phosphorus values and barium values, then you know, okay, something happened because of agriculture. And it's normally very helpful if you have information about the soil around your ceramics. So you know, for example, if there's a lot of calcium in the water that also entered the ceramics, but most possibly didn't enter your clay source because it wasn't in the same environment. So there's a lot you can do if you know something about the soil. And normally, because you do something with the pottery, you know, you put in temper, you burn it, there is some change happening you can't control. And so if you have an analysis, your pottery normally doesn't exactly match the chemistry of your clay source. But there are several techniques, either statistically or just by looking at your graphics, to identify if this clay source can be the search for your pottery, or if it's so far off that it can't. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it's it's not like you can go and say, okay, these elements, they look all the same. This is my source. This mm -hmm. is not, sadly, this is not how it works. When you're talking about sources uh, of clay um, in the area where, uh, where these pots were found, um, is there clay close by um how, how far do people have to travel for clay and like you mentioned these are uh, along the river rhine is that correct well most of the settlements the settlements i'm working with are in one is in hessen uh the wetter so in the wetter and um another one is around rottenburg at the neckar so it's just roughly in the Rhinian area. And um, one of those settlements, there I did some sampling on the clay sources in the area. And normally you say, well, they wouldn't carry clay much farther than five to seven kilometers because it's heavy and you need to transport it. And so you search for clay that's closer. And I sampled five different clay sources around the settlement I'm working on. They are about two to two and a half kilometers away. And yeah, so there were different sources in the area following the chemistry. 
And I can rule out at least two of those sources that they really didn't use those because they don't match my pots at all. But the others could be possible. And to be sure that I'm not just getting some random um, yeah, matches, I used, um, I don't know how it's called. I need to Google that word, I think. Um, it's just a long iron stick or so you can just put in the ground and then you can take a soil sample. Oh, an um, auger. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. That's a nice word. Auger, yes, that's it. I hope it is because, like, oh no, I need to check this out because if it's not, I'll, yeah, it's an auger. There we go. There we go. Yes, I've, I got something right. Yes. <laughs> Congratulations. And, uh, yeah, so I used that too, and it was about a meter long. So I got different depth of the soil and of the clay. So I was sure there are no modern intrusions in there. And it was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Definitely. See, I, I quite like the, obviously, like I come from a chemistry background. So obviously any chemical analysis is like definitely my wheelhouse. Uh, I, I really <laughs> I like that kind of stuff because I used... Um, cold vapor fluorescence spectroscopy to look at mercury and like trace Ooh. elements. Ooh, yeah, fancy stuff. I only spilled mercury <laughs> on myself twice. Um, <laughs> you know, and I'm fine. Um, but no, that was, uh, I was actually ancient hair samples uh, instead of clay. I'm quite, I must say, I quite find it quite interesting uh, the way in which narrowed down um, these kind of things you know, when you talk about uh, like the distance that somebody might have carried clay, um, I'm wondering um, at this time in um, was there a lot of trading going around? Is it possible that people were trading pots? Yeah, was there uh, sort of trade networks there? Uh, yeah, for the Albuca especially, we well, you know, it's so diverse. It, it's so interesting because it's really difficult to compare different settlements and their exchange patterns and the networks they had because every settlement is different. And yeah, you have that Elbika style, which they use to decorate their pots, but it's, it's different in the details, even in the early phase. And yeah, you have to expect that they brought pots from somewhere else or that they imported pots yeah and maybe they imported the ones that they like the look of you know what i mean <laughs> i like the idea that there was some sort of sense of like some people just made pots because they like the look of them do you know what i mean this kind of like yeah I, I find sometimes archaeology uh, especially in scientific study can be quite hung up on very kind of like uh, these formulaic kind of methods of well a person you know would have made the pot for this use and you know this is what why they made it and like i'm sure somebody had a go at making pots because they liked making pots you know yeah, and it's, yeah. Very it's very difficult to capture that you know and i always yeah. wonder if you pick up a pot you know you look at it and you're like why did they why did they want to make it like this you know were they copying or were they making it up as they went along yeah you were um, saying that these pots are kind of different but they're they you think that they're kind of possibly from the same kind of group of people what is the is the difference in how they're made or like the styling or what what seems to be different about them well well it's it's really completely different so if you've ever had an elbika pottery shirt in your hand you really immediately recognize it because it's really a special way they made it and that Laogat pottery is completely different so Laogat has a completely different shape normally those um Elbika pots are more glob globular so more mm -hmm. rounded and those Laogat pots have an, an egg shape they have an oval bottom they they are really thin walled they're polished in some cases, not always. And they have, well, I need to think about the word for that. They, they have a on it. 
and uh-huh. and it's it's in lines, so you you have waves around it, and then they then they just made. Um, well, I I really don't have those words. That's annoying. I just have to look it up. I could not do anything remotely archaeological in German. It's definitely not not <laughs> my kind of like forte at all. I'd be stuck on like archaeology. No, that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. So so you have this this plastic rims that that are like wave lines, and then you have stitches all around it, which you normally don't have in in the LBK. So it really looks completely different, the style, the decoration. And then sometimes you have bone temper. So the really classic Laugat shirt has bone temper. And it's always sad that LBK doesn't have bone temper. But it's only a part of those Laugat shirts who have bone temper. The others have normal mineral temper in it. So it's more really like those stitches, those plastic rims and ribbons and the form of it. And the way those Laugat pots are made is really characteristic for pottery before you have Neolithic. And you can find pottery of that form and style or comparable style from Japan to the North Sea. And, and in Japan, it starts at about, well, 26,000 BC already with, with those kind of pottery. So it really makes sense to say that get pottery belongs from all the things you can see to a pre-Neolithic lifestyle. But for me, that doesn't mean that the LBK people weren't able to do that kind of pottery if they needed it for a purpose that was more in a mobile it's, lifestyle. It's definitely fascinating. And I can't wait to, like, I, you'll have to send me it when it's done. I'd love to read it. Because <laughs> um, I, I think this to. is one of the things that, like, I think this is something that is really, really exciting, both for archaeologists and I think non-archaeologists alike. I think pottery ceramics are, they're really tangible. You can touch them, you can feel them, you can see them, you can really understand them quite intuitively, you know? Um, And if they're not in tiny, tiny pieces, you can kind of start looking at how they put together. Um, I I think that's a really, really, I think quite powerful aspects of archaeology um ceramics but of course probably by the end of this you'll never want to see another pot in your life um (laughs) oh no i I think i will never never get enough of of pottery and analysis and and working with those kind of things and just you know i waited so long to get that pottery and to be able to to really well, that sounds kind of creepy, but to touch it and to really look at it very, very closely and to do stuff with it and to understand it. And it's so amazing. And I have that feeling not just for my pottery I'm working with now, but also for the pottery I worked with in Azerbaijan or in Georgia. So I just think it's so a great thing because, you know, I always picture someone who was there and who made it. Someone put time in there. It meant something for someone because it, it takes time and you want to, you need it for something. You want to convey something with it. You want to do something with it. And there was a human being doing it. And I just think it's so amazing. That is good. Well, thank you very much for coming and sitting down and sharing your love of pottery with us as well as telling us all about <laughs> Sifa Deutschland. If somebody is listening and is interested in um, getting involved in Sifa Deutschland, what can they do? Well, they just can contact us. So we have our coordinator and you can just Google us via Sifa Deutschland and then you just end up at our page and there you find the email address and then just get in touch. We are happy to to talk about Sifa and that's uh, very yeah very straightforward. I love it. Just talk to us. Thank you. Again. <laughs>
No, I'm, I'm sorry. I think, I think we can let you off uh, <laughs> this one time. But thank you again, and uh, all the best, and stay safe. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.